look at verse number 1 of Mark chapter 11, we see the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. As we're going to see later, this was not Jesus' first time at Jerusalem, but it was a very dramatic time because here he is uh, entering Jerusalem, if you will, uh, one last time uh, before Calvary. And when he came nigh to Jerusalem, verse 1, unto Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples. And he said, Go thy way into the village over against you, and as soon as ye be entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied, a donkey, whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. And if all we had was the Gospel of Mark, we might think that this is Jesus' very first journey to Jerusalem. But John tells us of many previous trips, and Jesus, like any devout Jewish man, went to Jerusalem for as many of the major feasts as he could. And as Jesus prepared to enter Jerusalem, he carefully and deliberately sent his disciples to make arrangements. And so uh, he sends a forerunner, if you will. And and all these disciples are getting ready uh, to make arrangements for his arrival into the city. Since the time was short before his crucifixion, Jesus left nothing to chance. And so he established that he would enter Jerusalem riding on a colt. And he deliberately chose a young donkey, not a stallion, not a horse, uh, not coming on foot. And because in that day, to come riding a colt, as opposed to a mighty war horse, was really to come as a man of peace. And Jesus came in peace, with an olive branch, if you will. And Jesus didn't come to Jerusalem as a conquering general, but as a suffering servant, though triumphant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us, and I pray that we'd glean all that we have to and get to from Mark chapter 11. We need to hear from you, and so I pray that you would speak uh, through me, and that you would just have your will and way. Uh, keep us humble, Lord, and I pray that we'd be spirit-filled listeners and, uh, and uh, that I would be a spirit-filled speaker today. We need you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Based on Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, some thought that the Messiah uh, would come as a majestic conqueror. And based on Zechariah 9, 9, some thought that the Messiah would come in a lowly and humble way, riding on a donkey. And in the days of Jesus, some rabbis reconciled uh, these by saying that the Messiah would come humbly to an unworthy Israel, but mightily to a worthy Israel. And so since Israel considered themselves worthy, they thought they were hot shots, they thought they were everything and a bag of chips, uh, they were expecting a triumphant conquering Messiah. And so on which no one had sat Uh, To Jesus made no difference that this was an unbroken cult. He was the creator coming to the scene as a man. The divine playwright had stepped onto the stage. And as such, all the lower creatures were subject unto him. Apparently, Jesus had prearranged this with the cult owner, as we can see by reading the text. And the disciples were just instructed to say, hey, it's for Jesus. As uh, really, they were questioned. And they did as Jesus said, and it was fine. Look at verse 7. They brought the colt to Jesus, and they cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and many cut down branches of the trees and strawed them in the way. And they that went before, and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And here's what they were saying. They were saying, sweet clean. Get rid of the Romans. We don't want them here. This ancient empire that has really monopolized this entire region. Uh, Lord, we are just desirous of a conquering Messiah. A conquering chosen one. Hosanna. Sweet clean the Romans. And so those palm branches were meant to symbolize that the uh, Messiah had arrived to clean house. And so the same voices, unfortunately, that cried Hosanna would one day cry, crucify him. And for much of Jesus' ministry, he was despised and rejected of men. Often the adoring crowds followed him only for what they could get out of him. And most of his audience rejected any kind of personal commitment to Jesus. All of that was different on this day. On this day, they lavished attention and honor on Jesus. They used clothes as a saddle uh, for Jesus and as a red carpet for the colt that he rode upon. And so considering the expense and the value of clothing in that day, this was generous praise. Then those who went before and those who followed uh, cried out, Hosanna. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And so for most of his ministry, Jesus did everything he could to discourage people from publicly celebrating him as the Messiah. But here, Jesus went out of his way to invite public praise and adoration as the Messiah. In fact, when the religious leaders of his day objected, he told them if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. The statements from the crowd came from Psalm 118. And so in this way, their praise was scriptural. And it is important that we praise God as he desires to be praised. If uh, Hosea 14 says we are to approach him with words, we can do that. Uh, If Psalm 100 says we're to approach him with song, then we can do that. And that is how we should approach him. If God says we are to come to him with hands raised up, then that is how we come. Uh, Psalm 134. And the whole point in worship is to do what pleases God, not what pleases men and women. But the beautiful truth is that when we please God, we find ourselves wonderfully pleased as well. And so we call this event the triumphal entry, but really it was a strange kind of triumph. If you spoke of Jesus' triumphal entry uh, to a Roman, they would have laughed at you. For them, uh, triumphal entry was an honor granted to a Roman general who won a complete and decisive victory and had killed at least 5,000 enemy soldiers. And when the general returned to Rome, they had this elaborate parade. Uh, First came the treasures captured by the enemy, or from the enemy, and then the prisoners. And his armies marched by, unit by unit. And then the general rode in a golden chariot, pulled by magnificent horses. Priests burned incense in his honor, and crowds shouted his name and praised him. The procession ended at the arena, where prisoners were thrown, uh, possibly to wild animals for the entertainment of the crowd. And that was a triumphal entry. Uh, It wasn't a Galilean peasant sitting on coats put upon a pony. And so Jesus came as the Messiah to Jerusalem and not as a mighty conqueror against Rome. He came first to look at the standing of the people of God and to make an inspection. And you notice in the rest of Mark 11, we see the results of this inspection. Malachi 3 speaks prophetically of the Messiah coming to the temple in careful examination and assessment. We see again the courage of Jesus because he didn't hide from the authorities. According to John 11, it was made clear that there was a price on Jesus' head. A price on Jesus' head. And the authorities were looking for him. And despite the threats, Jesus came into Jerusalem fearlessly and in the most public way possible. Verse 12. 
And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry, and he saw afar uh, far off a fig tree having leaves. He came, if happily Jesus might find anything thereon. And when Jesus came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto the fig tree, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. And growing up as a teenager, I would always read this passage, and I thought to myself, well, Jesus as the creator of the world. Jesus as God. Isn't he being a little petty? I mean, he could have just made the fig tree grow. Uh, but really, the fig tree here was a picture of false advertising, having leaves but no figs. Sometimes we can be like that too, can't we? Where we, we, we dress up for church, we put on our Sunday best, we spit, shine, shoot, and polish, and all that. But we've not even spent time with the Lord that morning. Ordinarily, this is not the case with these fig trees, which normally do not have leaves without also having figs. So if you follow there, it, it was false advertising because it showed, so obviously should have had fruit, but it didn't. The leaves said there are figs here, but the figs weren't there. Uh, there were many trees with only leaves, and these were not cursed. And there were many trees with neither leaves nor fruit, and these were not cursed. This tree was cursed because of false advertising. It professed to have fruit, but it did not. And in response, Jesus said to it, uh, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. The tree was cursed for its pretense of leaves, uh, not for its lack of fruit. For its pretense of leaves and not for its lack of fruit. Many times we can pretend to have fruit. We can pretend to have the fruit of the Spirit. And, and what's happening, actually, we are exemplifying the works of the flesh, of self-love and vanity and selfishness. This tree was cursed for a pretense. And like Israel in the days of Jesus, had the out, outward form but no fruit, having a form of godliness but denying the power of, thereof. And it's not wise in our lives, Christian, to... Uh, deny the power to keep the form. In all works, in the ministry of Jesus, this is the only part in the expression, the only destructive miracle. The Old Testament is filled with miracles of destruction and judgment, but Jesus most perfectly showed us the nature of God. And if this was the only miracle of its kind, we must see that there was a great and important lesson in it. And God does not approve when there is profession without reality, talk without walk. Verse 15, they come to Jerusalem and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast them that uh, sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And you heard the screaming in the MP3, and you would not suffer that any man would carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, uh, saying unto them, is it not written, my house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but you, ye made it all. A den of thieves. And so Jesus went to the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. The temple area was filled with profiteers who worked in cooperation together with the priests. And they robbed the pilgrims by forcing them uh, to purchase sacrificial uh, animals and currencies at inflated prices. Every Jewish male had to pay a yearly temple tax, which was an amount equaling about two days' pay. And imagine if you had to go to church, right? And every time you went to church, you had to shell out like two days of pay. And how ridiculous this was uh, in this day and age. It had to be paid in the special temple currency. And the money exchangers had made the exchange into temple money at outrageous rates. And they did this at the outer court of the temple. And this was the area where Gentiles could worship and pray. 
And therefore, this place of prayer was actually made into a marketplace and a dishonest one of that. God intended the temple to be a house of prayer for all nations, but they had made it a den of thieves. And it's a sorry, shameful condition when the house of God, when the church, if you will, or uh, the temple, or however you want to say it, becomes a place uh, where unrepentant and active sinners can associate and hide. And as an aside, uh, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And so uh, let's not be dishonest, and let's not make our bodies uh, a marketplace for sin. Verse 20, verse 20, and in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And so they see this tree that they had seen several days uh, previous, and Jesus had cursed it. And now they arrive at this tree and notice Peter, in verse 21, called to remembrance what had happened. He saith unto him, Master, Rabbi, Jesus, look, look, uh, the fig tree which thou cursed is withered away. And Jesus answering saith unto him, have faith in God. Now, I wasn't alive to hear uh, uh, Brother Lee Robertson preach, but so I hear from other old preachers, have faith in God, have faith in God. That's how you say it. I, I, I didn't know him. I just saw him on YouTube. Okay? And so, really, that's how he said it. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. But I've never forgotten, uh, you know, just reading through um, this phrase. I, I think about how he'd say it. But look at verse 23. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe those things of which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Verse 24. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, not if ye pray, it's kind of understood that the believer prays, right? When you pray, when you pray, believe that you receive them and ye shall have them. And when you stand praying, forgive. If you have ought against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. And Jesus explained this miracle was really the result of a prayer made in faith. And he encouraged his marveling disciples to have this same kind of faith, trusting that God would hear them also. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Faith is not a work, it's dependence on the worker. Faith is not a work, it's dependence on the worker. For all I take him, F-A-I-T-H. Have faith in God, have faith in God. And prayer must be offered in faith, and faith must be in the Lord. Faith is trust, it's confidence, it's dependence and reliance upon someone or something. And a mountain even to this day, and back then as well, was a popular figure of speech for any insurmountable problem. And Jesus said that as we believe, God will overcome the obstacles. It's not of man. Even Jesus said, uh, of my own self, I can do nothing. He was relying on the Father's power, right? And I think he uh, lived a life that exemplifies all that Christians are supposed to be. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so we know our provision is found in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. And so we tap in uh, to the, the uh, Word of God by reading it and applying it. Be uh, not just hearers of the words, uh, but doers also. Jesus said that as we believe, God will overcome the obstacles. And this promise of God's answer to the prayer made in faith was made to disciples and not to the multitude. Not to the multitude, but to this inner circle. Do not interpret Mark 11 to mean if you pray hard enough and really believe, God is obligated to answer your prayer no matter what you ask because that's faith in feelings. 
And uh, skipping down to verse 25 and 26, as we just read, refusing to forgive or holding on to bitterness can also hinder our prayer. When you stand praying, forgive. Also, sometimes a hard and unforgiving heart can be bigger than any mountain. We are not to place religious duty or ministry ahead of good relationships with other people. We are to set things right first and then continue on in prayer. And we can't do this through our own power. You understand that like forgiving people is difficult? <laughs> it's hard. You can't do it without the Father's provision, without Jesus. And so... Uh, he said in, in John 15, without me, you can do nothing. I like how that was alluded to in the missions moment just a, just a moment ago. Paul wrote, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. And the forgiven heart will forgive others. And if we have hard, unforgiving hearts, it's, it's just going to call into question, really, if we've ever really received or appropriated or appreciated the gift of forgiveness that God offers us. Verse 27, this group, they come again to Jerusalem, and as Jesus is walking in the temple, there come to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And they say unto him, by what authority, what authority doest thou these things? Who gave thee this authority to do these things? And Jesus was not looking to debate these religious leaders, and by the way, I don't think we should be chasing arguments and chasing debates. And some people, uh, even uh, as churchgoers, they, they, all they want to do is just argue. And I've said it before in, in the past, like, you know, how Jesus was casting out devils. He, he didn't have, like, a Ghostbuster backpack, and he's, like, trying to, no, as he it was following God's will. As he was doing the Father's business, he ran into opposition. We're, so we're not, so, we're not supposed to be looking to debate and to fight. And so he didn't seek out these arguments. And in the same way, let's not look for things to argue about. And Jesus wanted to teach the people and tell them about the good news of God, the gospel. But the questioners came to him, and he was more than capable of handling these uh, skeptics. Jesus was extremely courageous by boldly entering Jerusalem and driving out the corrupt merchants from the temple courts. Now the chief priests and the scribes and the elders wanted to know, what right do you have to do all this stuff? You made a whip and you started hitting people. We're the politicians. We're the ones making the rules. You can't just be hitting people, right? And so uh, now uh, they, they wanted to know. And as Jesus often did, he answered a question with a question. And verse 29, Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask of you one question. Just one. One question. Answer me, I will tell you by what authority. I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, Pharisees, listen up, was it from heaven or was it of men? Answer me. And they reasoned with themselves saying, if we shall say from heaven... Then, then he's gonna he's gonna say why why didn't why then did you not believe John? But if we shall say men, they feared the people because they knew that they regarded John as a prophet. All men counted John that he was a prophet indeed, and they answered and sent to Jesus, uh, "We can't tell, we can't tell you." And Jesus answering saith unto them, "Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things." And with that, the chapter closes on this kind of cliffhanger. And when Jesus asked them to answer the question regarding John the Baptist, he was not evading the question. If John was really from God, then he was right about Jesus. And Jesus was indeed the chosen one. He was indeed the Messiah. 
And if what, what John said was really true, then Jesus had all the authority. It was not a dodge, but Jesus cleared the air and defined the attitude of the religious leaders. He revealed to them that they rejected John in a similar way as they now rejected Jesus. And their response to his question exposed the fact that these men were not sincere seekers of the truth. And you, you'll go out through, through your life and you're going to meet some people that will ask you questions and they're not sincere seekers. And we all have to do that introspection, right, before the Lord and ask if we're sincerely seeking the truth or are we uh, seeking to indulge our own lusts. Their response to his question exposed the fact that these men were not looking for the truth. They cared more about scoring points in debate. They, they, they cared more about their ego. They cared more about people-pleasing and looking good than knowing the truth. And all they wanted to do was talk. And this story is an example of what happens to men that will not face the truth. They have to twist to the point where they have nothing to say. And the truth will set you free, but at first it will make you miserable. The truth will set you free, but at first it must make you miserable. It is more difficult at first to face the truth and admit wrong, but it is the only path with a real future. Forgive, if you have aught against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you of your trespasses. I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus answering saith unto them, Have faith in God. <laughs> 